Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me throughout the week on the Facebook page. Actually, again, that's not so true anymore. Um, I have this sort of stock opening, but I'm mostly on Twitter and I do plan to uh, develop my evidence-based radio Twitter more uh, in the coming weeks. So I will probably be changing that up to uh, Twitter. I'm just, I don't feel like being on Facebook is really a good idea anymore. It's just, you know, I'm pretty sure you all know why. <laughs> uh, I just, I've just have decided that for a while I'm going to take a break and maybe I'll go back at some point. But um, yeah, it's, it's just one of those things where do you really want to be a part of that at this point? I don't think so. But you can also find this show and previous shows as a podcast or on your favorite podcatcher via the website, evidencebasederrata.com. Okay, so um, let's start tonight with a rather interesting story about the application of mathematics to rat whiskers. Um, I actually wanted to say, I ha- tonight's stories are quite the smorgasbord and often that's true but I really kind of had a bit of a struggle to find stories this week that weren't frankly depressing um and so I would just like to know let you know that I do work very hard on that um I try and make this a space where we don't have to be sad and depressed about things where we can just be like oh that's super neat and I really enjoyed learning about that instead of oh dear, everything is terrible. (laughs) So let's talk about rat whiskers, because I think that that is definitely something more fun to think about than pretty much anything that's going on in the real world at the moment that might otherwise occupy us. (laughs) So it turns out that rats have whiskers that follow a rather precise pattern. They can have up to 70 whiskers of varying sizes and shapes. Now, almost all mammals do have whiskers, but the rats are rather more special as they use these super sensitive, movable hairs to explore and sense their surroundings pretty much more than any other animal relies on their whiskers. Though, you know, obviously the thing that I think of or the animal I also think of in this respect would, of course, be cats. Um, They definitely use their whiskers for different things, including figuring out whether or not they can fit through a particular space, even though sometimes they try anyways, even when their whiskers have told them they shouldn't. (laughs) And so um, Robin A. Grant, Senior Lecturer in Comparative Physiology and Behavior at the Division of Biology and Conservation Ecology at the Manchester Metropolitan University in uh, the UK, reports that she and her colleagues analyzed 523 whiskers from 15 rats and found that each individual whisker had a different length and shape. They found that the whiskers can be accurately described by a simple mathematical equation known as the Euler spiral. Now, she notes that the special that special spiral patterns are found throughout nature. Um, for instance, in several um, kinds of animals and um, things like that. 
<laughs> sorry, um, and that finding them might help us both understand nature better and also improve engineering. Also called the cornu spiral, spiros, or clothoid, the Euler spiral is a shape whose curvature changes linearly with its length. It can be described as an S shape where the tips of the S carry on curving into spirals that get rapidly tighter. This means aspects of the curve can fit into a wide variety of shapes, including those that are straight or S-shaped and those that increase or decrease in curvature. Now, this property is what makes it able to describe all whisker configurations, despite them not being all the same shape. Now, um, many forms in nature do have this linear radius of curvature um, along their length, making them lather logarithmic spirals. And you can find these in animals such as, um, well, seashells, obviously, um, in the horns of uh, various kinds of sheep and antelope, in the tails of lizards, and uh, especially seahorses. Um, they have those cute little tails that curve, curve around things. And now the spiral was actually first described by James Bernoulli, um, who you might know better for uh, the idea of lift, uh, the Bernoulli principle um, about high pressure versus low pressure. Um, and so in 1694, he discovered it while trying to solve a mathematics problem related to elasticity. Unfortunately, Bernoulli did not actually plot or draw the spiral or show any kind of proof about its nature. And so the Swiss mathematician Leohard Euler discovered Bernoulli's equation and actually described the spiral in 1744. Now, it was independently spotted by French physicist Augustin Fresnel in 1818 as part of the shape of light diffracting through a slit. And again... <laughs> by American civil engineer Arthur Talbot in 1890 when designing railway tracks, which would produce a smoother journey. And in fact, it's especially useful for designing parts of railway, railway tracks or roads that transition from flat to curved. It's even able to be used to derive the best route for a race car around a corner. In addition, it's been used in designing map projections and even improving the operation of microwaves. <laughs> so that curve gets around. But getting back to the rats, whiskers are made of dead hair cells that sit in specialized sensitive follicles. It's those follicles that extract the information about the force and direction of the whisker as it touches objects and relays that information to the brain in order for the rat to form a picture of the object's shape, size, and texture. The size and shape of the whiskers strongly influence how they deform and thus the signal sent back to the follicle. Being able to see what the whiskers follow being able to see that the whiskers follow a mathematical pattern can help us understand more about how the signals are received and interpreted in the brain. It also suggests that rat whiskers probably grow from the base by the same amount each day, though they say other factors could be 
um, impacting this, such as the season or um, how much food is available at the time. And finally, it's quite possible that other mammals also have whiskers that can be described by the Euler spiral, which will, again, give us a better understanding of these biological structures and how they work. So very cool. And it's also just lovely to find these sorts of mathematical uh, regularities in nature. Um, I just think it's really fun to find, uh, you know, examples of the golden ratio, though we, I think we've talked about before that the golden ratio is a little bit controversial <laughs> in different um, in different quarters. But, um, you know, things like these spirals where you can say like, oh, these completely different uh, parts of nature have the same kind of spiral that describes a part of them is just very cool. And I think that that is a lovely way to show sort of the the uh, mathematical and uh, sort of physics underpinnings of um, matter, in fact. And so it's kind of a glimpse into the uh, underlying structure of how things are, which, you know, I think is pretty cool. All right, let us move on now and talk about dairy products. <laughs> so um, researchers are probing how ancient people began drinking and eating dairy products long before any of them were able to develop the mutations that would allow them to continue to produce lactase into adulthood. So um, basically, most people uh, still have trouble digesting dairy as adults because when you're a baby, your body produces lots of lactase, which is what is needed to break down the lactose, which is the milk sugars in um, milk. And if you don't have the ability to break down those sugars, then um, I'm sure some of you out there listening know exactly what happens. Um, you end up with a lot of uh, pain and discomfort. And so if you're drinking things that have a lot of lactase in them or eating things that still have a lot of lactase in them, though eating um, dairy products, most of those are a little bit safer because they have less lactase due to other um, processes. And so um, the researchers hope that learning more about this process will help them to learn more about modern food allergies and sensitivities. There's at least a 4,000 year gap between when we see the earliest evidence of dairying and when we see the first evidence of any mutation anywhere in the world, said Professor Christina Warriner, head of microbiome sciences at the Max Planck Institute for the Science of Human History in Jena, Germany. Even today, only 35% of the world's population has the mutation that actually allows them to, in fact, drink milk without any kind of problems. Now, most of those people are from Northwestern Europe, but there are also smaller populations in the Middle East, Sub-Saharan Africa, and South Asia. Um, and so, for instance, um, I believe the Maasai people who have been uh, very long, uh, have um, lived with uh, dairy cows for a very long time. I believe they have the mutation that allows them to drink milk into adulthood. And um, there are some other populations, obviously. 
if we can work out how the evolutionary history and mechanics of lactose intolerance, for instance, how diet, human genetics, and the gut microbe interact, we will have a powerful model for how to tackle other complex digestive disorders and food allergies, said Professor Warner. Now, researchers are currently looking at the diets of Mongolian herders who do not have the mutation for lactase persistence, which is weird because they have been dairying in Mongolia for thousands of years. Yet today, the people of Mongolia do not have the mutation that allows them to produce lactase, she noted. And um, so Professor Warner is actually uh, heading a project investigating Mongolia's dairying history called Dairy Cultures. And so Mongolians consume milk products from a variety of animals, including, uh, but not limited to, (laughs) horses, yaks, sheep, camels, cattle, goats, and reindeer. And they make everything from vodka distilled from yak yogurt to a dried curd product that is shelf-stable for up to two years. Now, researchers suspect that the processing techniques help make the dairy more digestible. Microbes eat the lactose when converting milk into yogurt or cheese. The reason people were able to eat dairy before we had the ability to process lactose is because of fermentation, said Cheryl Makarix, professor at the University of Kiel, Germany. It shows the power of this kind of processing and how it can impact how your body reacts to different foodstuffs. It may also be that there are microbes in the human gut that have evolved to break down lactose. But of course, we don't have good evidence for this yet because we haven't really had a chance to study it. Now, the researchers are actually now studying samples from the herders to see if their microbiomes contain elevated levels of microbes that aid in milk digestion. The more we can understand about how the microbiome functioned in the past and what it is capable of, the better we will understand how and why the microbiome is changing now and why it is associated with so many health problems today, noted Professor Warner. Now, we can tell that dairy drinking began around 6500 BCE from the residue left in pottery samples from Anatolia in present-day Turkey. It then spread throughout Europe in the 6th century BCE and then south to Africa by 3000 BCE and from there across Asia to Mongolia before 1300 BCE. Now, Professor Richard Evershed of Bristol University in the UK heads a different kind of program called Neomilk, and he's actually studying the dramatic change that cattle farming brought to what had previously been hunter-gatherers in Europe. These people changed us as Europeans to be genetically different from the rest of the world by the decision that they took to do dairy farming, he said. Now, milk really is a game-changing food, especially in these early times when, you know, things like protein could be scarce if you didn't have a good hunt. And so milk is rich in proteins, calcium, sugars, and fats, all the sorts of things you need when you're uh, trying to get through your day. And when they are converted into cheese and other products, They also become a viable resource throughout the year. 
This meant that cattle became a renewable resource rather than as just a source of protein that would need to be replaced with each culling. Dairying also literally changed the rhythm of people's lives. Cows need to be milked once or even twice a day, and that milk needs to be processed basically right away for it to be usable in a pre-refrigeration uh, uh, community civilization. Um, and I'm not even sure that you can let it stand even if you put it in refrigeration. I think you have to do at least something with it pretty much right away. But I'm not, you know, obviously um, an expert in dairy cowing or um, <laughs> anyways, this process takes several hours a day and is largely tied to women's work, at least in these, um, you know, pre-industrial times. And so this may have actually been a turning point for women, keeping them closer to the herd and home than they might have needed to have been in pre-pastoral times. And so that's actually a really interesting thing to um, examine is whether or not this change actually had complex social implications versus, um, you know, for women, especially where once they might have been able to go out and gather for several days and come back to, um, you know, their settlement. But in this, at, when you come to cows and other uh, animals that you need to be maintaining and, um, milking, then you can't do that anymore. And so it's a really interesting thought um, how that might have impacted women in an overall cultural way. Now, some of the microbes that are used in processing dairy have most likely been in continuous cultivation for millennia, suggests Professor Warner, but few of those have been studied by modern science. And the researchers actually suggest that the microbes that were once used in this dairy process are actually being replaced by a few mainstream ones that are grown in labs rather than cultivated from ancient strains. And it also means that most bacterial agents now come from labs as the dairy products are produced in sterilized conditions that reduce the amount of other bacteria present in the final product. We don't know yet what the outcome of that is for the human body, Professor Makaritz said, it's a really interesting period in terms of human dietary evolution, she added. Now, this might have something to do with why, again, modern people are less tolerant of certain foods. But of course, it's still a very young science. Um, and so we don't, we still don't know a lot about uh, how the microbiome affects things. We're just starting to talk about it and just starting to do deep dives into research on it. But it turns out that our obsession with purity and cleanliness might actually make us more sick and more prone, especially to sensitivities. Um, but of course, we'll have to wait for more research. But again, what has been done so far is intriguing. Okay, let's move on now to some really cool stories about uh, communication. And uh, the first couple are about animal behavior, which is, of course, one of our favorite topics. So new video shows a male gray seal, Helicorius gripus, using its flippers to produce loud underwater sounds. 
the researchers believe that it may very well showcase a never-before-seen kind of communication. Now, most underwater aquatic mammals communicate underwater mammal communication is associated with vocal sounds such as clicks and whistles, um, you know, that we mostly associate with things like cetaceans, whales and dolphins. But a new paper in Marine Mammal Science looked at this new clapping as a probable form of communication most likely for attracting a mate or fending off rivals, which is kind of the standard for any um, kind of either um, activity or extra that uh, animals have. It's usually either for attracting mates or fending off rivals. (laughs) And so the sound is produced by the seals, rapidly bringing their pectoral flippers together to produce a loud snapping sound. Now, it's only been detected in males, especially during mating season. Led by marine biologist David Hawking from Monash University in Australia, the team suggests that the claps are most likely meant to showcase the animal's strength and ward off potential rivals while, again, showing off for females. Think of a chest-beating male gorilla, for example, said Hawking in a statement. Like seal claps, those chest beats carry two messages— I am strong, stay away, and I am strong, my genes are good. And so while captive seals have obviously been taught to clap for decades, these were completely wild seals clapping spontaneously. Now the footage was captured by co-author Ben Burville, a researcher from Newcastle University who captured it off the coast of the Farne Islands in northeast England back in 2017. The clap was incredibly loud, and at first I found it hard to believe what I had seen, said Burnville in, in a statement. How could a seal make such a, clap, such a loud clap underwater with no air to compress between its flippers? Now, the animal captured in the video had been seen swimming near females before making the slapping noise. Other males were also present. And so while only one event has been captured on video, several others have been cataloged by the researchers, adding up to over 20 clapping events over a 20-year span. They note that actually capturing footage has been hard due to the rapid nature and unusually sudden onset of the behavior which of course is a continual theme in these sorts of things. Um, We talked a couple of weeks ago about uh, new research on tool use in puffins. And again, it was really hard to get the actual proof of that because they don't do it all the time. And it's also just really hard to get puffins in these camera traps and things like that. Um, And so, yeah, it's really hard sometimes for animal behavior researchers to actually manage to get the animals into places where they can observe them properly. (laughs) And at least um, not necessarily observe them, but document them. That's the really huge difference. Um, So for instance, in that other case, um, the researcher had seen it done several years before um, she could publish because she didn't have actual um, she didn't have any actual documentation in order to show people. And that's something you really have to be able to do if you're going to publish. And so, yeah. <laughs> All right. So the sounds, the sound lasts less than a tenth of a second, but can reach frequencies above 10 kilohertz. 
And so these claps are generally only done once or twice and seem to be directed at seals nearby. Now, the researchers also note in their paper that they cannot exclude the possibility that clapping may also have been directed at the diver. However, its constant association with the presence of other seals and frequent occurrence even when the diver is out of sight makes this interpretation unlikely. Now, they do, however, note that further research will be needed to see if this underwater percussive signaling can be observed in other groups of gray seals. Now, we know that other aquatic animals, aquatic mammals, such as harbor seals and humpback whales, will actually slap the top of the water with their pectoral fins, again, to either entice mates or scare rivals. Um, but the gray seals' communication is unique because it can be heard both above and below the water. And so hopefully more field work and observation will show us yet another clever animal engaging in communication in ways we once thought reserved for just a small group of particularly special animals. Um, <laughs> okay, so we're going to take a break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about more uh, animal communication. And so do stay tuned. We're going to talk about penguins next. And penguins are always awesome. So hang on for just a few moments while we do some PSAs and show promos. Hello, this is John Hodgman, resident expert for The Daily Show with Jon Stewart and author of More Information Than You Require, speaking into a small machine representing WXOJLP Northampton Valley Free Radio found on your radio dial at 103.3 frequency modulation. That is all. It's important to make sure your family has a plan in case of an emergency. We talked to this family to see if each of them knew where to meet if they were not together when something happened. If a natural disaster happened and we were outside the home, we would all meet at the park. That's our meeting point. I meet with our neighbor's house because she is my mom's good friend. We all have a meeting spot, which is a bus stop. Is your plan any better? To learn more about making an emergency plan for your family, go to www.mass.gov slash MEMA. Brought to you by the Ready Massachusetts U.S. Department of Homeland Security and the Ad Council. I Heart J-Rock with DJ Sakura is your weekly two-hour show devoted to rock music from Japan. Join me on Saturday nights, 10 p.m. to midnight. I'll be playing the very best and the newest J-Rock, J-Pop, J-Metal, VK, you name it, I'll play it as long as it's from Japan. Thank you. Sure, humans can be a little weird at times, but take it from me, I'm a dog. And a person is about the best thing that can happen to a shelter pet. So if you want to learn how you can be that person, get down to your local pet shelter or visit the shelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Sassy! Today's episode, Bobcat in the Cave. Oh, nuts! There's a bobcat in this cave! Save us, Sassy! <laughs> you will, but first you'd like to stress the importance of cat adoption? <laughs> Over 5 million cats go into animal shelters every year and they need to be adopted? Help us, Sassy! Why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the shelterpetproject.org. Remember, adopt. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, Women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis pregnant. That's pertussis, 
P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can, too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for media flu. media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Sure, humans can be a little weird at times, but take it from me, I'm a dog. And a person is about the best thing that can happen to a shelter pet. So if you want to learn how you can be that person, get down to your local pet shelter or visit the shelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Okay, we are back. And as advertised, we are going to talk about penguins. So we are specifically going to be talking about new research that suggests that African quote-unquote jackass penguins vocalize in a way that follows two very common rules of human language. So we're moving from fully, mostly fully aquatic to semi-aquatic as we move through language. And so African penguins... Sphaniscus demerus have the nickname of jackass penguins because of their honking donkey-like brays. But despite the rather humorous lilt to their vocalizations, they might just actually be communicating in a way similar to humans. And so in the new study, From the journal Biology Letters, the researchers recorded nearly 600 vocalizations from 28 adult male penguins living in Italian zoos. Now, the reason they favored males is that, well, they tend to vocalize more, especially during the mating period, which is when the research was going on. Now, they already knew that the birds had three distinct types of vocalizations, with the honks being reminiscent of human syllables when greeting one another, mating, or defending territory. The new research looked into whether these honking vocalizations followed common linguistic rules. Now, the two rules are called Zipp's Law of Brevity and the Menzerath-Altman Law. Now, Ziff's law was first proposed by linguist George Ziff in 1945, and that states that the more frequently a word is used in a language, then the shorter it will tend to be. So, for instance, in English, you might look at words like the, to, and, it, etc. Um, And, of course, we've talked about these laws in respect to human language before. And so uh, analysis of over a thousand languages found that this 
that these laws held true in every single one. That's one of the crazy things about um, language is that it has such amazing commonalities regardless of how different they are. And so if you think about the uh, language of, for instance, the San people of Africa, um, who are famous for having those, uh, the cliques and other kinds of um, what we would consider strange vocalizations in their language. Their language is still fundamentally very, very close to every other language. Um, all of the Romance languages, all of the Slavic languages, they all have more in common than they do, uh, than they have in differences. And, um, you know, I find the, um, the study of language to be so fascinating because it's so interesting to think about how language developed, how we developed different languages. Um, and it's just the linguistics is such a fascinating subject, um, especially to me. I just think it's really, really interesting how we're able to actually communicate with one another in such a robust and just incredible fashion. Um, and I think that we don't think we don't necessarily think about it um, often enough how incredible it is that I can t I can be talking to you over the uh, airwaves um, or on your computer and you understand what I'm saying even though I'm nowhere near you I don't have I don't necessarily even have a shared cultural reference with you but if you speak my language you can understand what I'm saying and I just you know and then to take it a step further uh, which we're not talking about tonight but the idea of being able to then uh put that down on paper is also just crazy. Um, and so, um, again, written language also has very close similarities, even though they might seem very, very different. Um, they still share certain rules. And so there's clearly something that, again, like when we were talking about at the beginning of the show, sort of these patterns that show up in um, nature there's obviously some sort of structure in our brain that ends up requiring languages to be structured in a certain way that when you look at them across all of the languages, you find that they all follow some of these same rules of um, grammar and things like that. And it's just fascinating. Um, I really do love talking about communication. That's why I love it. That's why I really like talking about um, animal communication, because it shows us even more how broadly um, sort of um, universal uh, the idea of language is and communication. And so, you know, this is one of the themes of my show often, which is that we once really thought that, you know, communication was only for humans and uh, a couple of primates and maybe a couple of birds. And now we've just expanded it so greatly. Um, and it's just so fascinating to me to see how much there is out there to learn and how much there is out there that we still don't know about. Um, and that's kind of what I try and bring 
to uh, this little enterprise. So I hope that I'm doing an okay job of uh, spreading the the just wonder and majesty of all of these crazy things that we both know about and don't know about. Um, but anyways, let's get back to uh, the actual story. Um, and so um, the second rule, the Menzerath Altman Law states that the longer a word or phrase is, the shorter its constituent syllables will be, while shorter words can have longer syllables. So for instance, uh, hippopotamus versus mouth. So mouth is just one syllable, but it's a long syllable, um, whereas hippopotamus has many short syllables. Now, both of these rules have been confirmed in non-human primates. And now the researchers have found that they also conform to these two rules when looking at African penguins' communications. And so it is the first time that a non-human primate has been found to conform to these two rules. And so it's really interesting. And again, it speaks to how there is this deeper connection for how communication forms in the most basic sense. So I think it's really fascinating. Um, and I hope you do too. And speaking of language, we're going to... Uh, we're actually going to bring it back to uh, humans. And so a new study suggests that talking to babies using baby talk is actually good for them and can help them develop a larger vocabulary later in life, which often leads to better outcomes. Now, this is definitely the kind of thing that people debate about, um, especially first-time parents worried about doing the wrong thing. Um, but it turns out that it that talking to your baby in the way that is actually fairly instinctive to most people uh, is actually okay. Now, you're probably familiar with just what baby talk is, or as the researchers call it, parent tease. It's when we slow down our words, increase our pitch by nearly an octave, and exaggerate our vowels as much as possible. Um, if you're not into babies, it's probably the same, it's around the same voice you use if you're into dogs or cats. Um, and so I'm not going to do any of that right now, but, um, and so we also tend to pause for a response, even when the baby is unable to talk yet. And so it turns out that this habit can be found again across cultures, and it does seem to give babies an advantage as they learn their first language. Now, the new research published in um, PNAS even suggests that parents can be trained to improve their parentese, and that this in turn will help the baby's ability to learn language. Now, we're still not sure why this sort of talk aids babies in better language acquisition, but given its universe, universality, there is definitely something to it. And so they suggest that uh, such exaggerated language might help the babies to better understand what's being said. It might be that the more melodic theatrical qualities better hold the baby's attention and thus help it imprint more successfully. And um, one of the most important things probably, but of course all of this is up for debate, is that pausing for a response allows babies to practice speaking even if it's just babbling. Now, researchers at the University of Washington in Seattle took 71 families with young babies and divided them into two groups. 
They then tracked them for a year. They asked the parents to record a full weekend of the family's conversations when the babies were 6, 10, 14, and 18 months old. The parents were divided into a group that was given coaching on how to improve their parentees and a control group who was not given an intervention. The group given coaching was brought into the lab after each recording session to be given feedback and tips directly from the team. They were taught to include back and forth interactions to give the babies the chance to practice, even with just babbling, and they were given suggestions for age-appropriate interactions during bath time, meals, and other social interactions. They found that parents who were coached did better over time at engaging the babies in back-and-forth interactions and spent more time using parentees. The researchers found that babies of the coached children were chattier than their companions in the non-coached group. And at the end of the research, they found that the chattier babies did better on language assessments than those of the non-coached group. Now, one thing the researchers were careful to balance was socioeconomic status and found that it did not impact the results. Now, however, of course, as with most studies, there are weaknesses. The non-coached group did not receive any interventions while the coached group knew they were getting feedback and thus may have performed for the researchers in ways that they wouldn't have done normally. That is, with all studies involving babies, the research is a little muddy. It's definitely prone to noise. But in the end, it seems that the instinct to talk to babies in parentees most likely has good outcomes. Okay, let's move on now to archaeology where a team of researchers have applied high-tech engineering tests to stone tools, which suggest that even early members of the Homo genus, like Homo habilis, had the ability to select rocks that had the right amount of durability and or sharpness in order to be used for specific intended tasks. Now we have evidence of stone tool use going back to 2.6 million years ago. And so researchers looked at simple stone tools created by human ancestors like Homo habilis from the Olduvai Gorge in northern Tanzania, where sediment layers go back to around 1.8 million years ago, and Homo erectus, who began making more complex tools like hand axes around 1.2 million years ago. Now, we've already learned a lot about how they lived and sort of what they were doing um, based on the wear and napping marks on these tools. But the new research looked at why they chose the particular rocks they did in order to create the tools. Now at Old Divai, the preferred rocks were quartzite for making small, sharp-edged cutting tools called flakes, while basalt and other metamorphic lava rocks were preferred for large cutting tools such as hand axes. Now, in order to try to learn just what made these particular rocks the most attractive, Alastair Key, an anthropologist from the University of Kent and his colleagues, put model stone tools from the Pleistocene through a series of tests using modern engineering test equipment. 
they wanted to see if the ancient hominids' selection of raw materials for their stone tools were actually the best choice or just became a sort of habit passed, you know, down from, you know, as they used them, they just decided those were the ones that they liked. So in order to test this, they made model tools from Olduvai basalt, chert, and quartzite, which represent the most common raw materials for tools found at the site. They then turned to the engineering test machine, which lowered each sharp flake onto a 16th inch PVC pipe to see how much pressure it required to cut through the pipe and how much the surface gave way before splitting. In order to test the durability of the tools, the machine had them cut through oak branches, after which the researchers looked at how well each flake held its edge between cuts. Quartzite turned out to be the sharpest, with chert coming in a a close second. These were ideal for making small disposable cutting tools. Basalt, on the other hand, is much less sharp, but basalt shined in terms of holding an edge. It was much more durable for large objects like hand axes, which again is how it was used. And so all of this suggests that our ancient ancestors did indeed know what they were doing. Although Pleistocene individuals may not have been aware of doing so, a series of mechanical principles routinely applied during the design of modern metal cutting tools were being exploited, wrote Key and his colleagues. And while they certainly weren't putting tools into experimental apparatuses to find the best quality stone, they were able to observe and learn over time which rocks were best for which tasks, which is, of course, an impressive feat for such basal ancestors. These are, you know, very deep ancestors. So, for instance, Homo habilis would certainly be recognizable as an early hominid ancestor, but would blend in very well with modern chimpanzees or bonobos, much more so than modern humans. And so they actually still lived part of their lives in trees and were just really starting down the path to what, uh, you know, humans would eventually become. So it's actually really fascinating that they were able to develop such complex ideas about raw materials for tools. Though, again, as we've been learning more and more, tool use is apparently not so special as it used to be. Um, This is, again, another thing uh, with animal cognition, both tool use and... um, (laughs) uh, communication are both apparently a lot more common than we used to think they were. Okay. Uh, and in ominous, uh, sorry, in other uh, early hominid news, this time about a slightly closer cousin, Homo heidelbergensis, we find that a group of these hominids trekked through layers of ash and pumice soon after the eruption of the Rocca Monfina volcano, some 350,000 years ago, just days after it would have erupted violently. Now, this volcano is now dormant, um, but it is located 37 miles northwest of Vesuvius. So it's in that same, um, would have been in that same sort of uh, hot spot of lava. And um, this is, it would have been, again, um, a pyroclastic kind of flow, much like Vesuvius um, is when it blows. 
And so it's suggested that the group of hominids may actually have lived and hunted near the volcano. And so this is actually showing some really interesting um, behavioral um, information that is generally hard to find about such ancient uh, ancestors. And so luckily for the researchers, after they walked through the ash layer, um, another ash layer soon covered the slope and preserved at least 81 tracks that were only exposed by erosion in the early 1800s. And again, it's a really quite remarkable record to begin with, but this one is actually quite detailed and amazing. You can see the trails of at least five climbers, all with different foot sizes, as they walked down the steep and ash-covered side of the volcano. One trail zigzags back and forth downhill, uh, implying someone cautiously making their way down. Um, another has a more curving path, and you can also see the remains of handprints or handholds where the climbers had studied themselves, and even a slide mark that indicates where one of them slipped. And so according to ichnologist Adolfo Panarello of the University of Casino and Southern Latium in Italy and his colleagues, it must have happened uh, within a few days of the pyroclastic flow. And so Raccomunfino may even have still been erupting. Locals in the 1800s thought that the tracks must have been from the devil. Instead, it was almost certainly this ancestor population that would eventually lead to Neanderthals around 400,000 years ago. Now, uh, this is probable, but also maybe not, because... This actually comes into uh, the old argument in anthropology about lumpers and splitters. Um, and so I've talked about this before, where there are certain anthropologists who want every um, variation in um, morphology to be considered a separate subspecies. And there are some um, anthropologists who are very much of the opinion that we should have much broader categories. And um, so there's actually some uh, back and forth about what exactly, um, what exact group that this, um, that these prints come from. And so um, it may be Heidelbergensis, but it might be a population of Heidelbergensis that was local to this area um, and had some sort of more um, more uh, older, uh, thicker, more um, ape-like features and is not the particular lineage of um, Heidelbergensis that led to Neanderthals, that it might be a cousin to that group. Um, and so the identification of Heidelbergensis comes from a comparison with fossils from the Cima de los Huesos cave in Spain. And that those fossils are from around 430,000 years ago. And um, so they looked at those uh, fossils and they compared them, for instance, to uh, one right footprint, uh, which was extremely detailed and showed a wide heel, a low arch, and um, also showed very clearly the base of the big toe. And so um, it's one of those things where 
it's slightly up in the air because you're only you only have these very small amounts of fossils and you have this small amount of um, trackway and there's also um, nearby where the trackway is there have been other hominid fossils found that look more um, that are from around the same period but those hominids had a slightly heavier brow and um, had more features that are more like more ancient hominids and so again it's sometimes really hard to decide. Um, and so that's why you have all these varying opinions of lumpers and splitters, because there's no clear cutness to this. Um, but nonetheless, uh, I think the, the sort of takeaway from this is that we have this amazing uh, picture of these uh, creatures that were very, very much um, on their way towards what we are. And we're clearly doing things that, you know, you can look at those trackways and imagine yourself doing the same thing. And I think that's also mind blowing, um, considering how long ago this was. Um, and so uh, they think that uh, they were probably either uh, hunting or, and I think this is probably the one that I favor, uh, because modern humans do this, that they were just, you know, checking things out because there had been a major eruption and they wanted to see what was going on. And I think that that's, um, that's a really uh, compelling argument to me, that they were just like, we, we really should go and check out what's happening because that was weird and upsetting. And um, yeah, so I'm going to go with that one. And I'm going to go with them being, uh, you know, I don't think it matters if they were Heidelbergensis or if they were Heidelbergensis, uh, you know, um, they were a branch of Heidelbergensis that is not uh, the root of uh, Neanderthals. They were early hominids, and in some way they're still our cousins and they're connected to us, and we can see them, the connection to them in these prints, and that's really awesome. And I'm going to leave you with that tonight. Uh, so I will be back next week and hopefully we'll have lots more interesting and not depressing things to talk about. Okay, have a good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.